Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 21 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to welcome Jeremy R. Kinney, Chair of the Aeronautics Department at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Most recently, he is the author of the 2017 book, Reinventing the Propeller, Aeronautical Specialty in the Triumph of the Modern Airplane from Cambridge University Press. It received the 2018 Secretary's Research Prize at the Smithsonian. Kenny earned his Ph.D. in history from Auburn University, during which he received the National Air and Space Museum's Guggenheim Fellowship. But today we'll discuss the history of the aircraft propeller during and after the Aeronautical Revolution, a period of extreme innovation in North America and Europe from World War I to the end of World War II. Kenny joins us from Washington, D.C. Jeremy, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you so much for having me. In your book, uh, you write that propellers are perhaps the most unappreciated component of one of humankind's most important creations, the airplane. So how so? Well, you know, what we when we think about propellers, uh, we think about World War II, World War One. We think about the old the old days of aviation, and we don't recognize the propellers are with us in our everyday lives. In a lot of ways, they're not considered modern. And so, in a lot of ways, they're they're forgotten, and and they seem to be a relic of a, of a past time. And so that's why I I say that because often we emphasize you know what's the latest and greatest technology jet technology now it's going to be electric you know propulsion technology but propellers have been with us all along and they're going to i think they're going to continue to do so and uh, a propeller's basic function is to simply propel an airplane forward through the air by the generation of thrust to convert engine torque or the rotational equivalent of linear force into prop wash and displace a large disturbed volume of air rearwards of the propeller itself. Is is that correct? That's right. A, a propeller, as it rotates through the air, it's been driven by that force created you know, inside the engine. It goes through the crankshaft, the propeller shaft, and it's creating that energy and it's converting it into thrust, which, in a, which is an aerodynamic phenomenon. So it's turning that physical force into an aerodyn- aerodynamic thrust. And when they say linear, instead of linear force, a linear force would be literally someone pushing a boulder up a hill. But a torque is a rotational torque in this sense, because you have a crankshaft that's turning. And so you're converting that rotational torque into uh, energy to turn the propeller. Is that right? That's right. So that, that, you know, that physical force, that energy, is as it rotates the propeller blades, the propeller itself, the air flowing over those blades creates that aerodynamic force. So it's 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 a you know quite ingenious, and it's, and when we think about engineering and technology, that is how it basically works. So the very first airplane in 1903 at Kitty Hawk had two wood uh, two wood propellers, and I probably should correct myself and say that's probably not the very first airplane, but it was the very first uh, airplane that 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 flew under control motorized flight. Uh, is that how you would define it, uh, the Kitty Hawk? Yeah, it's the first powered heavier-than-air flight. 
So in terms of what we think of an airplane having an engine, the structure, uh, the aerodynamic design, the control system, the Wright Brothers Flyer has all of that. And with it become, comes these two wood propellers. Uh, and the brothers make them out of two-ply spruce. You know, they're laminated. They're covered uh, in a varnish that has aluminum powder s- suspended in it. So they look silver. They look metal. Uh, but those are the world's first true airplane propellers. So the Wright brothers, the, their propellers produced an efficiency of some 66%, which was enough to get the flyer off the ground at Kitty Hawk. And historian Peter L. Jacob asserted that before the Wright propeller, there were none like it. And then after, there were none that were different. How were the, the Wright brothers able to come up with these ingenious propellers in their bike shop? Well, you know, what the Wright brothers excelled at was this nonverbal thinking. And they were able to really conceptualize what they needed to solve to make their flying machine possible. And in this instance, they, they looked for data. They thought that when they designed the propellers, they could just go straight to uh, you know, references, especially on ship propellers or anything that maybe you know, uh, experimenters you know, in aviation before them had written about. There was nothing there. And so it took their nonverbal thinking, them kind of arguing a little bit, kind of going back and forth, that they realized that a propeller is actually a rotating wing in a helical path. And what that means is, is that as the propeller turns, it acts like a screw going through the fluid medium of the air. And they visualized that. Now, those theories had, you know, existed in other places, they, but they weren't well known or well explained or available to them. And so they came up with that independently. But it was that nonverbal thinking that allowed them to solve that problem of how to design a propeller that would transmit that 12 horsepower of the engine into that 66 percent efficient thrust coming off the blades do you think that that their synergy as a as a team enabled them to to create the propeller would one of them alone have been able to come up with the propeller yeah the brothers were a team and it's you've seen primarily that uh they both had their advantages and disadvantages in terms of being that team and and wilbur's the most theoretical of, of brothers, whereas Orville's a little bit more hands-on. Orville's the one that works with Charlie Taylor to make the engine. But it's this, them going back and forth, and they're, they're actually, you know, they are more than the sum of their parts. And they, and they, and, and this team that brings about this idea, especially for the propellers, that leads them to come up with that idea. And so Orville's the one that's kind of recollected on that, you know, using that, that very specific phrase of a rotating wing and a helical path. And, but they, they, work off each other. And that's why the that dynamic interrelationship between the brothers, you don't see that after Wilbur you know, uh, dies. And that Orville kind of, you know, it's both, it's very hard to not have his partner anymore, but it's also because they both were fundamentally so related to each other in terms of their ideas. Uh, actually, the first person killed in an aircraft was due to propeller uh, failure, a Lieutenant, Lieutenant uh, Thomas Selfridge, who was killed while flying with Orville Wright in 1908. Well, you know, in September 1908, uh, Orville is going to demonstrate their right airplane to the U.S. Army in hopes of getting a government contract. And it's going to lead to America's first military airplane, the right military flyer. But on September 17th, 1908, Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge is the official observer for the U.S. Army, gets into the air with Orville. And as they're flying, 
spectators on the ground see something fluttering down from behind the airplane. It's actually part of one of the right propeller of the right propeller on the airplane, and then that broken propeller starts to flex. It hits a stabilizing wire for the for the rudder at the back of the airplane, and it renders the airplane uncontrollable and they crash into the ground and Selfridge dies as a result of his injuries. So it's not until a year later that the Wrights return with Orville at the controls and are able to prove that this airplane is worthy of purchase by, uh, for the U.S. military. But you know, the Wright brothers take what's known, they take their own knowledge and innovation with the propeller and they create something that's never been seen before. Things that look like propellers are on airships and you know, prototype flying machines before then, but it's the brothers who really create what we would know as a propeller. You write that a variable pitch propeller changed the angle or pitch at which the propeller blades rotated. So it's much like, a, uh, like the low gear in an automobile transmission. A low pitch propeller spins very fast to produce a lot of thrust to allow the airplane to accelerate during takeoff and climb quickly into the sky. So can you explain what this actually looks like when the uh, the pilot is changing the pitch of the propeller? And I guess there are two ways to change the pitch. I mean, but the the initial way to change the pitch was literally when the aircraft was still on the ground. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so pitch is the angle at which a propeller blade rotates as it spins on the front of an engine. And the Wright brothers uh, create what's called a fixed pitch propeller. That means that those blades do not change and they are designed for a, a setting, you know, an angle that's gonna meet what they need to get into the air. And propellers from the Wright brothers through World War I through the uh, 1920s are fixed pitch. And what evolves is this realization that if you change the blade angle or the pitch of a propeller, it can be efficient for the major ways that an airplane operates, especially takeoff, climb, and cruise. And that and people learn that you need a different pitch setting for each of those. And so what's attempted first is what's called a ground-adjustable pitch propeller, and so you can actually change the pitch according to you want a good takeoff, you want a good cruise on the ground before you take the flight. So you have to plan. That is, you know, morphs into the idea of a variable pitch propeller that can change its blade angle in flight. And that's taking the, the most, the biggest advantage of this idea of a gear shift. So, the, so it's realized that a variable pitch propeller can be like a gear shift in an automobile. You can have high and low gear. Low gear gets you going, gets you to take off and climb. And then when you want to really cover some distance, you get into high gear or cruise. And so that's what's being realized is that changing the angle of the blade as it spins around, that enables you to get more efficiency out of the engine and have a better performing airplane. So in the uh, in the pre-promotion for this podcast, I, I uh, put in a picture of uh, what looks like a DC-6 with the... Uh, Four propellers, uh, four engines with propellers, and would like a passenger, if you know, going up the uh, going up the stairs on the tarmac, would they be able to notice if a pilot was actually changing the pitch? As a as a passenger sitting in the cabin, if you had the vantage point of being able to look out your window and kind of look right 
you know, at the propellers and the engines, you might be able to see the pitches change as the airplane is uh, revving the engines up and getting ready to move on the tarmac. Because this is, I mean, moving at such high speeds, the rotation of the propeller itself and then the pitch changes. But sometimes if you look at them, you can see, like, you'll see the blur of what the propellers are and you'll see that blur change. And that's how you kind of see how that the area of the blades that are taking up that blur actually move and you're and that's when the blades are changing and so the angle of the uh, of the propeller would change at most by what uh, 15 degrees uh, 20 degrees yeah it's it's usually in that range of just 15 20 degrees sometimes 30 okay. for uh, propellers that are starting through the mid 30s to the 40s and even to the uh, present but you know there's going to be an innovation that comes later called reversible pitch reverse pitch which it goes from you know it does a range on either side of zero in terms of 20 degrees for thrust forward thrust and then maybe 20 degrees negative for reverse thrust and what is a reverse thrust used for is that uh, actually upon landing to slow the aircraft the idea of reversible pitch uh, facilitated braking on the ground. Okay. So it allowed an airplane to operate from a shorter runway. So for many of us who've flown on jet airliners, a lot of times when you hit that uh, runway, the, the jet engines will go in reverse thrust. It gets really loud and you, and you, get, you, lur- you, know, you lurch forward in your seat. Right. It's the same concept as reversible pitch for a propeller. So you wrote that the uh, first variable pitch propeller developed in the U.S., at least, took, the, took to the air over Southern California as America entered World War I in April 1917. The new propeller was controlled manually by the pilot to change the pitch, but the aeronautical community did not immediately welcome its introduction. Why was this? You know, the idea of a variable pitch propeller uh, during World War One was an idea before its time. Is that, you know, from the standpoint of the speeds that these airplanes are flying, which are around 100 miles an hour, you don't need that change in pitch to facilitate a low to high speed performance. But also, it's the, the practical issues of the system is heavy. There's a lot of weight being added to the front of the airplane, which throws the airplane off balance. And one of the design paradigms of um, you know aircraft engineers at the time was to keep things light and simple because it's you know and there's a lot of weight there. And then that Hart and Eustace propeller that's flying you know off San Diego in 1917 Long Beach, you had to use hundreds of pounds of force to actuate the lever to change the pitch. So that's a lot of. And as engine speeds get more powerful, airplanes want to go faster, that's even more force that has to be exerted to change that pitch. So it's a great demonstrator. It's a great idea. And it's a very important example of entrepreneurs, especially in what's going to become a hub of aerospace industrialization in Southern California, that they're thinking about ideas for the future. How did, you, how did they actually change the pitch if it required uh, hundreds of pounds of force? The idea of you know, mechanical actuation, which is what a heart and Eustace propeller is in the, in the later designs, is that it was the, the pilot actually manhandling it or thinking of ways to facilitate that through, is there a better way? But that was one of the primary reasons why mechanical actuation didn't work uh, in these early years. So I don't think it was ever solved. So in other words, initially, though, the pilot had to be pretty muscular to be able to handle any pitch change. Yes, that's correct. And so, you know, Earl Doherty, who's the demonstration pilot for that system, and it was his airplane, 
he's having to physically move those blades as it's rotating. So you've got that rotational force, the torque. But, you know, this isn't a, a powerful engine on his airplane. And so he can handle it. But as you're getting up into 400 horsepower engines, such as the de Havilland DH4, that's when the issue starts becoming a real problem for mechanical actuation. So despite uh, initial attempts at uh, pitch variation and control, the early aviation community reverted to the wood Fitch pitch propeller, as you mentioned that the, that the Wright brothers had uh, pioneered, as a standard component on aircraft. Laminated wood propellers possessed a considerable advantage over metal propellers because any metal propeller reduced in weight would be weaker structurally at that time. That's interesting. The metal at that time was structurally weaker than it is today. Today, the technology is more advanced. In other words, they were the metal technology was unable to compete with good old wood. Yeah, you know, if we look at the end of World War One, uh, there are no truly successful metal metal propellers being produced for airplanes. They've been experimented with, and the learning curve in terms of taking the knowledge of what works for a wood propeller, which which can be shaped very easily. There's a very predominant wood culture in America that facilitates the making of these propellers. The wood's always been a, ve- a vast resource that you can you, know, you can get you know uh, get large shipments of wood in in a way uh, to make these. And so it's it's a known quantity. And wood acts differently than metal. And so the early flight community brings in the knowledge of working with wood. It starts with the Wright brothers. It's uh, the the French Chavier and you know uh, pioneers as well as American propeller manufacturing company in Baltimore. Wood is the propeller material, and metal is going to take a significant learning curve. So what happens through 1918 when American industry as well as the military innovation and this technology takes place, 1918 through 1925 is going to be this very dynamic period of transitioning from wood to metal. And so you write in uh, in your book in 1917, uh, $640 million in government appropriation on July 24, 1917, charged the American military and industry to produce 22,625 aircraft and 46,625 engines. A virtually non-existent industry had to manufacture almost 50,000 propellers to meet the demand. Government required an unprecedented 7,500,000 board feet of quarter-sawn oak just for propellers. In the U.S., black walnut was in short supply and could not be grown fast enough to meet the demand, and mahogany had to be imported from South America or Africa. So even with brass or copper guard for tips installed for protection along the leading edges of the blades, an average wood propeller lasted only six months in service in Europe. Yet the industry still resisted metal propellers. That's pretty... That's pretty incredible. I mean, because you know the the role of wood in aircraft manufacturing is very important during World War One, and it, it's a known quantity. You know, airplanes are primarily made of wood. The propellers are too. And what is happening with that six hundred forty million dollar appropriation? You know, the the largest in American history is that the idea was to apply Detroit mass production to the making of airplanes. And what that means is unlimited raw materials to produce an unbelievable number of aircraft and their component-related components. And so that's when the first realization is is that wood is not going to work, is that they can't get enough good wood 
that they have to put, they have to have it kiln dried. They have to make sure it's the right grain. It has to be produced in a certain way. And then it has to be put together with glue that's going to be resistant to different parts of the world in terms of humidity and climate. And then there's, you know, that bottleneck in terms of getting more propellers, though, really goes, you have to put that against the idea that the, the wood propellers are known quantity. They know when they're going to break. They know that they're reliable and that they work. That idea of adding more sophistication, having to start from scratch. But in many ways, the American Aircraft Production Program was a reflection on the United States was trying to keep up and catch up with the Europeans in terms of making you know, the weapons of war, especially propellers and airplanes. And so what results is that there's going to be this little glimmering of ideas about what is an alternate material to wood, but for the time being, we have to make the best wood propellers in the world. And that's what's going on in McCook Field in Dayton, Ohio. They're doing the testing uh, to make sure that propellers are safe and reliable and can be, you know, facilitate you know, military campaigns. But there's also research going into how can we make this very important shift from wood to metal. So one of the catalysts for making that shift came when a Martin uh, T-3M torpedo bomber uh, slated for use on the U.S. Navy's new aircraft carrier, Saratoga and Lexington. And I didn't look this up, but I assume this is uh, in the late 20s uh, or early 30s, the aircraft carrier, Saratoga. Yeah, it's early, yeah, late 20s. The propeller weakened under the power of a 575-power horse uh, power right T-3B Typhoon V-12 engine. In other words, what you're saying is uh, what you talked about earlier going from a 400 horsepower to now we're talking about 575 horsepower engines. So in other words, the power from the engine uh, was so great that the propeller was not able to, to effectively handle it, this wood propeller. So the Navy authorized uh, the procurement of 100 Duralumin propellers for use on an improved variant of the aircraft called the T4M. Aluminum even was, was not that well known at that time, was it? That's correct. So Duralumin is the solution to the quest for a new material to make propellers efficient and reliable and modern. And it's an alloy of aluminum. It's got zinc and manganese uh, and tin in it. And it's going to be the basic material that's going to facilitate this transition from wood to metal airplanes overall. So the skin on a, you know, a World War II bomber is Duralumin. The girders and framework inside of it are the same thing. And so this is a pretty much weather-resistant, but very strong, light, and uh, reliable material. And metal, you know, broadly defined is what the transition is to, but it's first steel for propellers. That's not working. So the idea is of drop forged or alumin uh, blanks are shaped to a propeller shape that are joined to a steel hub. And that's what those um, Martin Navy aircraft have on them, is these new propellers are able to take the energy, once again, of that almost 600 horsepower and converting it into thrust and going through those cycles of vibration and performance and spinning, rotation, all that, and being reliable and safe. And so it's getting to the point where the engines are getting so powerful that these blades and, and on wood propellers off, and that's very dangerous, of course, and it doesn't facilitate, you know, a global naval air force as well as any other types of military operations. And so the technical impetus 
for the for a metal propeller is being met by this operational need that for na- the Navy's wings to grow, so to speak, you need a metal propeller. And what that means is duralumin. And that's um, a component of that the Navy really embraces because they see the ocean affecting wood airplanes. And so they want to they they're helping push for that that transition to metal overall. So Lindbergh in 1927 made his historic uh, uh, New York to Paris uh, solo flight. He was working with a ground adjustable pitch propeller. The prop blades could be adjusted on the ground, but once they were set, they could not be changed in flight. And so Lindbergh, you write, had two choices. He could uh, have an easy takeoff with a possible fatal landing in the Atlantic short of Europe or attempt one (laughs) with a much more desirable landing on French soil. What impact did this new propeller have on Lindbergh's success? You know, when Charles Lindbergh was uh, envisioning and, and designing the Spirit of St. Louis with uh, Donald Hall and others at uh, Ryan Airlines, he said specifically, I want a metal propeller. And what that meant was that he wanted a standard steel ground adjustable pitch propeller. And that's a mouthful. But what that means is that he could change the pitch of that propeller on the ground for whatever he had anticipated he was going to face as he flew across the Atlantic. And so he had, he, he consulted with the company and they decided that, you know, the best blade setting for crews was I think 17 and a quarter degrees. And you had a little scale on the hub of the propeller that allowed you to set it that way. And he decided to back it off a couple of degrees to get a little bit better takeoff because otherwise if he took off with that you know, blade setting for crews, he would have to use the entire runway when he takes off from Roosevelt Field. And that's what he ends up doing. That's even what he does when he backs it off a few degrees. And so what he's doing is he's gambling, but he's balancing the available technology, and he makes that choice. There wasn't a true variable pitch propeller available. He didn't need to use wood because he had this uh, metal propeller. But he's making that choice. And so in many ways, at the foundation of the success of his takeoff and the overall the success of the flight is him making that decision to use that propeller and to adjust it in a way that he's balancing what he needs to get off for takeoff but ensuring that he gets across the Atlantic. So the company Standard Steel, after Lindbergh's flight, they really maximized that uh, connection to the flight by, you could look at the letterhead on their uh, letters. They would spend, there was a stamp in the local uh, post office in Pittsburgh, and it said the propeller that took Lindbergh across. And that's how they sold that propeller. And that really showed the importance of that, not only to the company itself to selling more propellers, but also into this one crucial flight that really just electrifies you know, the United States and Europe and its enthusiasm for aviation. But uh, Lindbergh, uh, you know, as you mentioned, he barely had to use the whole runway, and he barely cleared a couple of uh, of uh, right. of electrical, electrical lines, lines and uh, the trees at the end of the runway. I mean, there were some trees what a couple of hundred yards beyond the runway. That's right. And uh, he barely, if I remember correctly, he 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 almost got into mud at the end of the run- runway. Is that right? That's right. Uh, you know, if you watch that dramatic takeoff in the film *Spirit St. Louis* with Jimmy Stewart, you've got that that whole that's being laid out for you in terms of understanding, you know, where the role of that propeller is in that system. You have this heavily laden, you know, airplane full of gasoline and oil and a pilot, 
and it's lumbering down this long runway, is he going to make it? He does, but he just makes it right over the electrical lines at the end of the field. And so he could have you know, backed it off more, you know, in terms of uh, taking off to make it a little bit safer, but he's, you know, he's making these calculated risks. And in many ways, that flight, you'd never characterize it as a stunt because uh, Lindbergh has taken the best technology or the, the best technology for that flight and incorporating it into that airplane, but also in terms of you know, doing the dead reckoning across the North Atlantic, how he's going to just use visual uh, cues in terms of finding landmarks to, you know, when he gets into Europe. That's all there, but the, the highest technology on his airplane in terms of propellers is the, propel, you know, is the ground-adjustable propeller he has on the airplane. So he's using the latest and state-of-the-art technology and it coupled with the right j5 whirlwind engine you know which is another cornerstone technology of the 1920s and 30s he is really you know making sure he's going to make this make it a successful flight and the spirit of st louis if i remember correctly i remember seeing it as a kid uh the spirit of st louis the aircraft the original aircraft is still in your main gallery on the mall in uh, dc is that right that's right. You can come to the National Air and Space Museum on the on the National Mall, and you'll see the Spirit of St. Louis hanging in the Milestones of Flight Gallery. And when you look at that, you can look at the different technologies. And one thing that really comes out, you know, in the book is about how crucial that propeller is on that airplane and, and to the overall aviation industry and the people using the technology. And so it's fun to look at that and, and see that. And we'll always have that on display and it's, a, and it's a great story to tell just all the people that are behind that one particular flight that you might not otherwise think about. And the inter- other interesting thing is the way it's juxtaposed against uh, the uh, space capsules that are also there. Uh, uh, That's right. You really see the march of technology in a way that you can appreciate. You also write in uh, the book that, as you just mentioned, that standard steel propeller sales uh, doubled in 1927. And by the end of uh, 28, the company had sold over a million dollars worth of propellers, which is a ton of money in 1928. Uh, I don't have a calculator, but, you know, you can imagine. A a decade later, Howard Hughes and four crew members took off from New York in a Lockheed 14 Super Electra twin-engine transport uh, in July 1938, and they covered nearly 15,000 miles in a round-the-world flight. Hughes praised the two Hamilton standard hydromatic constant speed propellers, which had only become available just a few months before. So uh, what was the significance of the constant speed? And uh, so, uh, and they were not uh, constant speed before? Yeah, constant speed operation means that the blades on the propeller actually change automatically according to engine speed. So if you think about the first variable pitch propellers, which might be you know, two speeds, high and low, and the pilot actually actuates a lever to go high or low, a constant speed propeller is an automatic transmission, and it changes the, the speed of the, you know, changes the angle of the propeller according to the speed of the engine automatically. So it's hands-off, and it can be set in a way to get even more efficiency. And so this very crucial period from the late 20s to the late 1930s is you witness this revolution in technology and innovation and the adoption of it. And so the early 20s is about defining what the propeller is going to be. It's going to be metal and it's going to be variable pitch. From the late 20s to the mid 30s, it's creating designs that meet that vision. And by the late 30s, when Hughes takes off in his around the world flight, 
that modern technology, an all-metal constant speed propeller, is being taken off the shelf, putting into his Lockheed airliner so he can make this flight. And so by 1938, this modern propeller has arrived, and it's being used by the aviation community to increase the performance uh, and the notoriety and the idea of what aviation can do. So the spectacle of these these important flights, like flying around the world, are avenues to see how the innovations are being used, and in this case, the propeller. And so what is a hydromatic propeller? The uh, hydromatic propeller is the constant speed propeller produced by the Hamilton Standard Propeller Company. And it puts together two words. It's hydraulic and automatic. And so when we were talking about those mechanical uh, propellers before where you had to you know, actuate a lever using the muscles in your arm, uh, Frank Caldwell, who's the leading designer uh, working at Hamilton Standard, uh, thinks of using hydraulic pressure to actuate the pitch. And so using actually engine oil uh, to that's in, you know moved into the hub of the propeller, depending on how much you want to change the pitch, there's a governor that connects and, and it regulates the amount of oil pressure inside the hub of the propeller, which changes the blade pitch. And so Hydromatic is the, is the brand name for this Hamilton Standard product. And it's the first truly modern propeller. There are going to be other ones and other designs uh, that are being used. But the Hydromatic is the one that you want to know about. It's, you know, when we think about cars, it's the Model T, right? We think about you know, these noteworthy technologies. The Hydromatic is that one propeller that sets aviation on that next tier of performance. And so, in other words, it enables uh, the pilots to not have to just use sheer muscle. To, to make these uh, mechanical changes. So we are using hydraulics in a way that, and hydraulics uh, will become a huge uh, a component of aviation technology in the years ahead. Yeah, and you'll, that, that is correct. And, and what you see here is a tiered approach where we can look at it in terms of generations. Is the ground adjust, and these are all developed by Standard Steel and what becomes Hamilton Standard after they merge with another propeller company out of Wisconsin, is the ground adjustable propeller it is a variable pitch propeller, but you can only do it on the ground. And then you have these iterations of designs. There's the controllable pitch propeller, which is high and low. And then there's a uh, counterweight propeller that it uses centrifugal force to actuate in one direction, hydraulic pressure in the other. But with the hydromatic, it's fully uh, uh, hydraulic in both both directions in terms of changing the pitch. And that's what that, that hydraulic nature that's so key in understanding how you can, you know, you're not using anything other than the machine itself to control pitch. And that's an ingenious idea. So uh, you write in uh, April 1938, a, a United Airlines mainliner, a Douglas sleeper transport, the latest DC-3 uh, type transport, departed from the Newark airport. Uh, with uh, 14 passengers, a crew of three, and enough fuel to reach Chicago. But instead of heading to Chicago, this was a, this was a test flight, if I'm not incorrect. The, uh, the captain, George Grogan, pointed the twin-engine airliner northeast toward New York City. He cruised over Central Park at 6,000 feet, <laughs> which, which you could not do today, right? Yeah. And at just over 200 miles an hour. Uh, Grogan then went through a mid-air procedure in which he stopped one engine adjusted it restarted it and then did the same for the other engine if i if i understand that correctly 
uh, because he wanted to set the blades uh, parallel to the wind. What do you mean by parallel to the wind in this sense? What uh, Grogan's flight over New York City demonstrates is the first uh, significant use of what's called a propeller feathering. And a, a major danger to uh, any multi-engine airplane in the 1920s and 30s, that if your engine went out, the air uh, flowing through the propeller would actually keep that propeller rotating. And it would be called, it's called windmilling. And that can create a lot of drag. And it can bring the airplane down or make it fly lower because it's having to use up energy to fight that windmilling propeller. Good gosh. And so the, the solution to that problem with a hydromatic propeller was that you could use that pressure inside that hub to turn the blades to where they're actually flowing through the, the air, the wind, like an airplane wing. So if you think of an airplane wing being parallel to the airstream, the three or four blades on the propeller would do the same thing, and that creates less drag. The uh, propeller doesn't windmill, and that enables an airplane like the DC-3 to fly on one engine. And that's a, that's a major safety feature when we think about you know, ETOPS for commercial airliners today, that any twin-engine airliner flying up the Atlantic has to be able to make it over on one engine. That idea goes back to the 1930s. And so this flight over New York is to promote this coast-to-coast -coast transcontinental service with United Airlines and to show the technology that they're going to be flying this route with. And so it, it's, it's a parlor trick at the time. I mean, you know, people on the ground could look up and they would see there's only one engine running. I'll know it's going to be a crash. But really, it's the fact the airplane is flying under its own power. And that enables airliners flying long distance. And one thing that's always been a very important distinction for the United States in the development of aviation technology is the long distances of the continent itself. And that means that you have to have long distance reliability. And you're flying over terrain that goes from zero feet at sea level to six, seven, eight thousand feet feet over the Sierra or the Rocky Mountains. And so that ability to fly over mountains on one engine, that's a very important thing for the success of American commercial aviation. And that's, what, that's what's being reflected in that flight, is that United flying this Douglas airplane with a Hamilton Standard Hydromatic propellers installed is showing that we are not only going to be fast and get people across America, but we're also going to do it safely. And the next day, you write that United inaugurated 15-hour coast-to-coast transcontinental service with a Douglas sleeper transport, a DST DC-3. What was the uh, average cost of a propeller in terms of percentage of overall cost of an aircraft in comparison to its engines, for example? Well, you know, in terms of today, we think of these, you know, multi-million, maybe pushing billion-dollar prices, but a Douglas DC-3 in 1938 cost around $125,000. And the two hydromatic propellers installed on it would cost, you know, $5,600. And so that's a small percentage of the overall price of the airplane, uh, whereas you're gaining an amazing increase in performance uh, and safety. And so it's a good investment. And... By 1938, you know, the aviation community has turned full circle on its uh, attitude uh, towards these increasingly sophisticated, heavy, and made-from-metal propellers. And, and 1938 is a very important that's, – that's why it's such an important moment. You have uh, Howard Hughes flying. You have this airline service going in. But it's the idea that now we've, we've got this modern propeller, and it, it's being played out in a way that it's available, and it, it can be used, and it can be spread out through the industry. 
And so is this uh, what you mean by reinventing the propeller? Yes. Uh, reinventing the propeller is the story of this community of specialists who take it upon themselves in the spirit of innovation, enthusiasm for technology, and they take what the Wright brothers invented, the wood fixed-pitch propeller, and they transform it into the all-metal variable-pitch propeller that the world grows in terms of aviation through the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And so reinventing something that's already there and, and meeting your own vision. And there are parallel and simultaneous reinventions as well, is that we've been talking a lot about the hydromatic propeller, but there are two or three other designs that meet that same criteria as well. So not all stakeholders and not all participants agree on what the ultimate solution is, but they are, they are all trying to meet that vision. But then uh, comes World War II, and, and as, you, uh, as you write, that's kind of the, the end of, of the aeronautical revolution. Then comes World War II. In the 1943 film, The More the Merrier, the lead, Joel Gray, is seen carrying a wood propeller with its edges and central hub reinforced with metal. But it was still a, a cutting-edge wooden propeller. Is that uh, historically accurate? Well, you know, The More the Merrier is a, a, a fun movie. And, you know, George Stevens, it's his last comedy. And it is the story of what was it like to be in Washington, D.C. during war in, in terms of this housing shortage and all that. So you have Joel McRae's character coming into town. He, he needs a place to stay for a week. And he's met by this kind of, you know, scheming. Uh, he's going to be a subletter, you know, George, the, the part played by George Coburn. And he's got this two-bladed propeller, very tall. It's, it's, and I think it's an important and, and unique and very clever cinematic device because it instantly says that Joel McRae is connected with aviation. And it, and it shows that, and it's covered up where you can't really tell what it is. Charles Coburn actually says, this looks like a propeller. And, you know, and Joel McRae responds, it does. And, and so they start talking about, well, what's his job? And, and so it's this very, he can't say where he works. He, he just, you know, he says he works at a baby carriage factory in Burbank, this designed to carry baby carriages to Tokyo. And so it's this reference to the war effort. And, and so it's, it's a very important symbol of the super secretive nature of these people coming and going because there's this whole culture of tech reps or technical representatives working for the industry because what Joel McCray's character is going to do is he's going to spend a week in Washington and then he's going to head out in a week to North Africa, I think is where he ends up going. That's as a right. sergeant in the Army Air Forces. Right. And so it's the technology of it. So this facsimile of this, you know, experimental variable pitch propeller is a great way to convey that super secretive nature of the technology of the war. Now, anything that would have been used on a frontline combat airplane in North Africa or Europe or anywhere around the world wouldn't be that small with two blades. And so it's, it's a great cinematic device in regards to showing what that is. So... It's not technically accurate in terms of what a what a high performance propeller from a baby carriage factory from Burbank, you know, Lockheed, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that's that's that what he would, said. That's what he said. And so, but it was these tech reps are you know using this. You know, th their jobs are to evaluate how can they make American combat aircraft better, and there are great examples of that during the war. But then they're also taking captured Axis technology and evaluating to see what they can learn from these these tech reps play a very important part so it's great to see you know joel mccray in that part in that film 
especially at that time of the war, because it just captures that whole moment in the war of what it was like for people on the home front and fighting the war, you know, in, in terms of what they could do uh, as, you know, specialists, as working in the city and the bureaucracy of D.C. It's all there. So it's a great film to see that. So Yeah, and I misspoke. It's uh, Joel McCrae. Uh, not Joel Gray. <laughs> Joel Joel Gray was in Cabaret, and yeah, no Joel problem. McCray is a big That's difference. Right. So anyway, uh, what about uh, turboprops? Uh, the combination of a gas turbine with a variable pitch propeller resulted in the turbine propeller or turboprop engine. Overall, uh, turboprops generated less noise in, than both the piston and turbojet engines, and were fuel efficient. Are they technically consider? Are they technically a jet aircraft? A turboprop is a jet engine. It's the combination of a propeller with a gas turbine. And and in this very you know dynamic moment of the 1940s in terms of the introduction of the jet engine, which you know, initiates a second aeronautical revolution in many ways, propellers have a part of it. And so instead of having a piston engine connected to a propeller as it is for the first 50 years of flight, it's that gas turbine engine. So when we think of how a jet engine works. It's all there, but that shaft that runs inside the engine turns a propeller. And so, yes, they are jet aircraft, and they meet a very important um, niche within aviation that they're not going to fly more than the speed of sound, and they're going to fly short to medium distances. And because of that, they're very efficient. And so, it's seen as a natural extension in aviation to combine the gas turbine to make you know, with with propellers to make turboprops. And there's this very important moment uh, in the late 1940s. Is this the only way to go in terms of the future of flight, or is it going to be the pure jet engine or the turbojet? Uh, so they are part of the story. You write that the uh, Vickers Viscount was the first turboprop airliner to, engine, to enter passenger service, powered by four Rolls-Royce Dart turbine engines connected to Rotol propellers. European and American Airlines bought over 400 Viscounts after their introduction in July 1950, but within a decade, they had disappeared as a dominant form of propulsion for aircraft. Why is that, do you think? Well, you know, the... the the jet age offers a complication in this understanding where the propeller fits in. And the, when we look at high-performance aircraft, which are commercial airliners and military aircraft, uh, the jet engine becomes the main source of propulsion. And so uh, the Viscount, uh, even the Lockheed Electra in the United States, uh, they are going to have their issues in terms of that longer range. The Electra has you know, structural <laughs> inadequacies that lead to some severe crashes. And so it's this long distance at high, higher speeds, pushing the speed of sound, that is what is wanted and needed and celebrated and embraced uh, by the aviation community. So the faster as possible in terms of covering distances, reaching high altitudes at speeds that you know, facilitate that. And so uh, turboprop aircraft fill a niche and so we always think of you know in terms of international travel the longest distances and that doesn't mean that if you wanted to fly in a regional capacity uh that you're those that's where those turboprop airliners are going to be used in europe and the united states they kind of ebb and flow in terms of how they're going to be used but the you know the viscount is the you know the first uh jet airliner in many ways the one it goes in the service 
but it, in terms of that high level long distance flying it's not going to be the the solution that's going to be a, a turbojet powered airliner but what's interesting is that if you ask the average person if a if a prop driven uh, aircraft was a was a jet airliner they would look at you like you were crazy <laughs> I mean, the, hey, that's to be, right to be honest nobody thinks of it like that but you're right in october 1958 you write that pan am uh, initiated non-stop passenger flights uh, from new york to london it's interesting i've just been watching this uh, pan am series from the 90s mm-hmm. uh, which was on abc and it's it's actually quite good and uh initiated this uh, non-stop flight to, to Paris in its new fleet of Boeing 707s. And uh, obviously this brought about the jet age, although uh, the uh, the Comet had a the ill-fated Comet aircraft model, uh, the British-UK-built uh, Comet, uh, was, I, I believe, was the actual first uh, jet turbine aircraft for commercial passenger service. Is that right, uh, or am I wrong? Yes, that is the first successful jet airliner. But uh, the first to fly, the first, the first to, to fly, I'll the first say. to fly. But then it had uh, ser- several uh, terrible accidents uh, due to metal right. fatigue. And then uh, you also write the DC eight uh, was one of the earlier jet turbine aircraft. Mm-hmm. But um, so, how long did it take for turbo jets uh, to become dominant over the uh, turbo props in the market? By 1960, uh, jet-powered airliners became the standard for uh, long-distance air travel, whether across the United States or internationally. And that comes about 10 years after the military. But it's, you know, this, you know once again, it's this, this enthusiasm for what the range and speed of these airliners can do that kind of clouds where the role of the propeller and propeller-driven airplane falls within that. But what about the supersonic propeller-driven aircraft? You write that a major challenge was reducing noise that resulted from the shock waves at the blade tips. Uh, the three-blade uh, supersonic aero products propeller on the Air Force's Experimental Republic XF-84H fighter generated such high-intensity noise that it rendered bystanders to be sick. Yeah, it, the... The uh, XF-84H generated so much noise that it can make you physically sick if you were in the proximity of the... And it was a very characteristic kind of noise. (laughs) And it just really, it would render you sick. Because what's still being investigated is, is there a place for the propeller in the jet age, in the supersonic world? And that's been, you know... uh, uh, a phase of research that, especially through the 1950s, especially with that airplane, is, that, is, there, a, a, is there a place for it? And, and it was a true effort in trying to find all the possibilities and see what would work best. But it was quickly being learned that, you know, two things that are kind of against propellers. Uh, and, and it's the, the inability to, to fly faster than the speed of sound because the first truly supersonic objects uh, were propellers that the blade tips turn faster than the hub at you know, the center of the propeller. And so as early as the 1920s, if you heard this banging, clanging sound, that was the, the small little shockwaves coming off the tip of metal propellers that were turning, to, turning very fast. And so a lot of the supersonic research that starts in the 20s is based on making propellers more efficient. But that becomes a considerable wall that can't be overcome by the 1950s in terms of getting them to operate supersonic aircraft. It's one thing to get the tips to be supersonic, and that's what that noise from that XF84H is, but it's overcoming that. 
it was much easier just to put a jet engine in an airplane and go fast. And that also takes out the issue of reliability that these hydraulic systems on propellers, especially there's a, you know, the electrical ones as well, that they take a lot of maintenance and they can fail. And it's one more thing to deal with. Whereas jet engines are starting to show they can fly a lot of time, a lot of hours between overhauls. And so it's the there's a practical push away from propellers. And that's why something like the XF84H uh, is being you know pushed to the side. But there's also uh, a cultural impetus is that jets are new, jets are the future. And so why put more work into these things that can be unreliable and loud, and they're going to take a lot more work to figure out if you can overcome the problems with them. But we also have to remember that uh, the jet turbines of the early, uh, of the late 1950s on aircraft in the late 50s are not the turbofans of today. In fact, the turbofans, you know, literally you have a, what looks like a propeller inside a, a casing of the cowl, the cowling of the, uh, of the engine helps to, uh, um, generate uh, thrust by having the jet turbine turn the the uh, turbofan. Addition of the fan, you know, that goes out outside the circumference of the engine itself to you know to create that bypass air, so you're just efficiently moving air. A legacy propellers are those large fans that you see on jet engines today, you know, the turbofans, in which you're trying to just move a lot of air efficiently. And a large diameter propeller is more efficient than a, a, a small diameter one. And the addition of this large fan on the front of a jet engine in which you know, it, it goes beyond the circumference of the engine itself. So you're just moving cool air on the outside of the engine that merges with the air that's been squeezed and burned and exploded through the engine. You're, it's moving air, and that makes it more efficient and uses less fuel. And so that's a concept that there's been some experimentation on making that big fan have variable blades in them uh, for better efficiency. And so that's a a little thing that's kind of coming from propellers in in one way. Uh, But turbofans are going to be an answer to the major problem with turbojet engines, which is fuel efficiency. And in the 1950s, when when, uh, military planners and engineers were like, well, there's all these problems with propellers, in terms of can we get the blade tips to be more efficient and can we get the mechanisms to be more reliable? The problem there is that the fuel for turbojets, which are faster, that take less you know, maintenance work, the fuel is so much cheaper. And we're going to see, and especially in the 1970s, this, this idea of cheap fuel really you know, influences another attempt in making propellers better. The Soviet Union uh, did not abandon propellers during the Cold War, as you note in your book. And uh, the uh, the Tupolev two, the Tupolev Tu ninety five introduced in fifty six, still in service. Uh, the Tu ninety five can cruise up the speeds of Mach point seven five with a maximum range of nearly eight thousand miles. There have been fourteen incursions near uh, the Alaskan coast just in the last year. And in fact, this week, there were two uh, bombers that uh, that were intercepted by uh, the U.S. Uh, Air Force off the coast of Alaska. Why do the Russians persist with these old propeller aircraft? What's the advantage? Well, you know, the uh, the story of the Soviets and their bear bombers and, and their turboprop engines on them is really an alternate story, is that the Soviets saw the solution to the problem of long-range crews to be 
very large diameter contra-rotating propellers on these turboprops so that they could, you know, get the best out of their system. That idea wasn't necessarily old 1956 when that airplane's designed, but it's something that's had such longevity. And it's, you know, these efficiencies that these, you know, that these aircraft can generate from their propellers is astounding. The American space program had the space pen and the Soviet space program used pencils. You know, it's that idea that, you know, this is a known quantity. We know how it works and we want to solve this issue of long range crews. And they do very well with that. And so the long, you know, the longevity of that airplane is a, is a testament to how that works for them. And it's still, you know, it's the only operational propeller-driven strategic bomber, uh, but I guess it's mostly a, a surveillance aircraft, you know, primarily now, at least for those incursions and things like that. So it's really, you know, just another answer to a solution. So one thing we haven't talked much about is that a lot of ways national style kind of comes into these, these ideas of answering these problems. And the United States uh, led in propeller technology, uh, but the British and the Soviets uh, also have their own ideas about how to go about um, designing propellers. And what do you mean when, you, uh, when you're talking about the bear bomber and the counter-rotating propellers? What, what do you mean by counter-rotation? Well, uh, aircraft by the 1950s with propellers on, you had an option of actually having two sets of propellers on, front, on the front of the engine in which you have a set of propeller blades, like four blades would rotate clockwise, and then you would have a second set in front of it rotating counterclockwise. That created, created more thrust, but also, you know, we were talking about torque before, is if you have one set of propellers turning one direction, that makes the airplane want to go to the side that it, that in the direction that the propeller is spinning. If you have contra-rotating propellers in which they, have, uh, you know, they are rotating on the same shaft, that takes out that torque and makes the airplane want to fly straight and be more efficient. But you're also able to absorb more energy from the engine by having two sets of propeller blades being driven. The most efficient propeller is one that has a very large diameter, and it moves a lot of air. But a, a large diameter propeller, if the airplane is sitting on the ground, it actually hit the ground. So if you go from three you know, very large diameter blades to four, you can decrease the diameter, but you can keep the same amount of thrust or maybe even cr- increase it by that surface area created by those rotating blades. What about the uh, Orion P- uh, P-3C? It's a surveillance aircraft, but uh, I believe it's also can use can be used as a, uh, a yeah, anti-submarine anti-submarine mm-hmm. uh, activity. It has these huge. It's a very bizarre. <laughs> the propellers are very bizarre. I mean, they're they're like paddles instead of the mm-hmm. normal propeller. Why? What's the aerodynamics behind that? Well, you know, the Orion is another classic design from the 1950s. It's uh, you know based on the Electra airliner. And so it, it, is a, it was designed for long-range crews, either as an airliner or as a maritime patrol airplane in its P-3 configuration. And the Orion is powered by four you know, T-56 you know, gas turbine engines driving four propellers. And they're, and they're actually, when we talked about hydromatic propellers in the 1930s and 40s, well, they become turbo-hydromatic propellers. And that's what are all in those airplanes today. That, and they're very wide from 
you know, the leading edge to the trailing edge, as you look at them from you know, the front, they're very, they look like big paddles, right? Big paddle blades. Right. And that is uh, Hamilton Standard's ultimate expression of what a turboprop propeller is beginning in the 1950s, and they've worked so well, they're still in service. Four blades is going to be the standard for aircraft like the P-3 Orion with its, you know, turbo-hydromatic propellers, uh, the, the C-130 uh, Transport 4. But then there's been a new generation of propellers that reflect a lot more aerodynamic study, a lot more interest in alternate materials, that carbon fiber technology is now supplanting metal technology uh-huh. uh that's six blades are the standard for these new high performance aircraft whether they're made in the u.s or in europe so where should we be using aircraft propellers today that we aren't a propeller driven airplane especially when it's a turboprop is most efficient at short to medium ranges and speeds upwards of 500 miles per hour and um they that means you could really be looking at these aircraft for regional transportation that's something we've seen especially since the late 1970s and i still think in my opinion that's the system that if that's further you know refined that's where the key to propeller driven aircraft is going to be for you know for commercial aviation uh with these six blade propeller driven aircraft like the c-130j that's you know flying with american military they are providing that efficiency and that work and so what is going to be the impetus for maybe a revival uh, of the propeller, especially in its turboprop configuration, as whether or not the cost of fuel is going to really drive that impetus uh, for what is going to be, you know, what's going to be the cheapest mode of transportation? Is it going to be a, a, a fuel-efficient turbofan engine? And, you know, there have been, there's been work in regards to that, to making those engines smaller so they can go on regional airplanes. Uh, but in terms of the short to medium uh, haul aircraft, that's where propellers have their niche that uh, if there was more work and more application, that there might be a possibility for better efficiencies there. For most people, it's hard not to, when we think about propellers, it's hard not to think about another World War II era film, uh, Casablanca. And the classic ending scene with the uh, propeller-driven engines roaring to life as the clock ticks on Rick and Ellis's last few moments together. Are we uh, collectively drawn to the romance of this old technology itself? I think that the uh, propeller is so deeply connected to the history and past of aviation that it's hard for modern society to really embrace it as part of aviation today. And that, and you see, I mean, and it's not intentional in Casablanca, it's just part of the story, but that's what we think of. We think of, you know, these kind of romantic and uh, legendary moments uh, where, you know, the personal lives of these people in the film, that, you know, that's the beginning of the end, right, is when the propellers crank up. You hear the engines <laughs> yeah. you know, cranking over, you hear the propeller spinning, and, you know, that sound, uh, especially when it goes to the more of the high-pitched whistling sound of a turboprop engine, uh, that's, that, that is a part of our modern everyday lives. But it's been part of what, you know, even in the 1980s, you know, researchers and co- corporations, especially like GE, who was trying to develop a new open rotor or propeller-driven uh, engine system to, you know, to fight high fuel prices, that there was an image problem. And that and the image is is that propellers are old and it might be you go to an air show and you see a warbird from world war ii doing a you know an aerobatic routine that's great that's entertainment you really get to see something from the past 
but you would never think that you know a frontline state-of-the-art military aircraft today would have propellers on it and so uh what drew you to aviation history I'd always, uh, as a young person, had been fascinated by the history of flight, you know, beginning with the Wright brothers and especially going through World War II. And it grew into a passion for history. And I learned that you could actually study aviation history, uh, aerospace history, uh, within especially the framework of the history of technology. Um, just as fascinated by many other technologies. But it's a, it's, a, it's a home where you can actually talk about how this technology evolved. What does a technology say about a culture that created it? And so uh, it's as an historian, first and foremost, it was the history of that technology and the people who created it that was my big – that really generated my enthusiasm as a young person. So when you see a propeller-driven aircraft, what's the first thought that pops into your head? Well, I'll look at the propeller. And I'll see what kind it is, you know, to keep up on my, my propeller spotting. But I also think about who made it. Like, who, you know, I, I think about the people who made this airplane. That's what, you know, I try to do in terms of, you know, curating an aircraft collection is that you have so many stories wrapped around a, um, a particular airplane, the people who, you know, wanted the airplane, the people who designed it for them, the people who built it in the factory, uh, and then the people who got it ready to go, you know, complete its mission, whether it's military or to fly a commercial route, and the people who flew on it and the people who maintained it. So in a lot of ways, I see uh, a propeller-driven airplane, especially in the story that I try to tell in a Reinventing the Propeller is the it's it's about the people who had these ideas in there and what they how they they wanted to change their world by working on propellers. So Jeremy, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? Yeah, uh, anyone interested in reaching out can uh, contact through um, the museum's social media page, which is airinspace.si.edu connect. And I also have a staff page on the museum's website where I have my uh, contact information on that. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Jeremy Kinney, let's hope that aviation technology continues to reinvent itself over the next 100 years. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.